Well, hi everybody, and a very warm welcome. Uh, if you're new to Emmanuel, my name is Joel, and we have teaching from the Bible every week here. We are in the book of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament this, this spring term, and today we're in chapter 21. Each week we're looking at different episodes from the story of Jesus' life. And at this point, we are in the final week of his public career. Uh, he's entered Jerusalem, and we're going to see uh, how things start in, in these closing days before his execution. Uh, there are lessons here for us about how we can find our true security, uh, how we can feel genuinely secure, and how to avoid the false securities, the false means of security that we often uh, default to. Um, so we're going to go there in a few minutes after we've had the reading from the passage. But before we do that, I wanted to mention to you March the 9th. March the, the so yeah, March, I have got the right date, March the 9th. We, we are gathering together at the Clarendon Centre in the centre of Brighton as a whole church. We gather to worship and to pray, to be together in the presence of God. We regularly do this kind of thing. But, but March 9th is especially... Um, it's, it's, it's especially special because we are going to be not just with people from across our four locations as Emmanuel, but we will be gathering with other brothers and sisters from other churches from Brighton and Hove. And so we're gathering with our friends from St. Peter's, uh, from City Coast Church and from Holland Road. Uh, these are dear churches, wonderful friends and led by friends of ours and whenever we get together to worship and pray together with these brothers and sisters from these churches and some other churches as well it's a special occasion and we've we've they've been really blessed times over recent years where the, we've been able to really sense the presence of god uh we know that the lord loves to hear our prayers and we know that there's something important about unity and brotherly sisterly relationships being a family together in the city um, and so we, we treat these special prayer gatherings as uh, uh, extra important. Be with us, 9th of March, 8 p.m., Clarendon Centre, and uh, it will be a very special time. Okay, let's have a look at these words of Scripture as they are read to us from Matthew chapter 21. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and lodged there. One of the experiences of parenting I've known is watching gifts, presents uh, given to children, say at Christmas or birthdays, being quickly weaponized. And that may be literally physically weaponized. You know, a, a, 
uh, a, 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 a remote control for a car being turned into a club or an, uh, an axe for, or a bayonet uh, in hand-to-hand -hand combat uh, under my roof. Or, or it may be more subtle sort of psychological warfare uh, where things that I've given out of, I hope, a, a genuine fatherly affection for my kids have, instead of being received and used in a kind of a grateful, happy way, have just occasionally, I don't want to make this sound worse than it is, just occasionally, uh, my kids may have turned gifts into opportunities for um, division and uh, hostility and a kind of party spirit that breaks out in the home between siblings. Now, I, I say that as if uh, I'm the only parent that suffered from that or the mine are the only kids. I did this worse when I was a kid. You know, things that were given to me in good faith and in joy and affection and love were you know, received maybe at first with enthusiasm, but quickly I turned it in on my own personal agenda, my own kind of um, uh, attempt to use gifts given as a means of improving my status in the home, my sense of self-importance and uh, value over against the value and importance of others in the home because, well, look what I've received. Now, this is a, a pattern in the Bible story uh, when it comes to the people of God throughout the scriptures. We see this happening in various ways. Gifts that are received kindly from the hand of a, a, a wonderful, saving, rescuing, loving, delivering God who set his children free from slavery in Egypt and gave them uh, gifts, special gifts, to privilege them, to bless them, were used quickly as a means of privilege in the worst sense. And so, for example, the gift of the Sabbath, the seventh day being a mandatory day of rest, so that Israel could enjoy what they'd never known before, the chance to stop from their work, from their slavery, and to just rest and enjoy God and his creation and his blessings and his favor, and know that they were loved and delighted in, that they had a new identity, that they were cherished. Sabbath was meant to be an exquisite blessing. But within a few generations, and by the time Jesus came into preaching in Israel, the Sabbath had been weaponized. It had become useful to Israel as a means of showing uh, pride, showing self, a sort of fleshly self-aggrandizement. It was a competition. Who could do Sabbath best? And if you didn't do Sabbath well, you were out. You were judged. You were the enemy. And so Sabbath actually became a monstrous burden to most people who couldn't keep up with the way that it was imposed upon them by their betters. Now that was just one example. What we have in this story is the same dynamic when it comes to the God's maybe most precious uh, physical gift, concrete gift. I say concrete, it was literally stone. It was the temple. God had given to his people this magnificent honor of hosting within their capital city the place of his dwelling that he had said i i will be pleased to set up my house 
in your land. <laughs> I will make my home amongst you. I will, I will move in. I will dwell with you. I mean, what a privilege, what an astonishing honor and joy it was for them to have the living God, the living God amongst us as a people. Why do we deserve this? What makes us worthy? That would have been perhaps their initial perspective. But again, it wasn't long before the notion of having God amongst us, <laughs> having the temple, this, this, this place, far from being a humbling and, and precious and, and joyfully received honour, it was turned, it was weaponized into a kind of trophy, into, it was, it was enabled to become a kind of a, a, a almost a superstitious means of triumphing and even uh, negotiating, even trying to sort of blackmail God himself. You, you wouldn't hurt us because we have the temple. We have your home. You, you, you can't leave us. Now, over time, this became a major problem. And again and again, they are warned through the pages of the Old Testament not to overly reckon on their privileged status as those who have the temple. Just because the living God dwells amongst you now, it doesn't mean he will forever in this place. There may come a day when this, this house will be closed down. But they don't listen. They don't listen. And in various ways, God actually shows that they should have listened. And we haven't got time to go into the story of that now. But when Jesus comes into the story here, we, we see him dealing with them. We, we see Jesus speaking strongly to them about the way they've, they've completely missed the point. They've completely failed to see the point of this incredible honor and, and happy privilege that they've had. And he's showing them, look, you, you, you have literally turned this house of prayer into a den of thieves. That's the phrase, as you notice, as we read it out just now. That's how Matthew places, that's how Matthew puts it. Jesus, I'm sure, said lots of things on this famous day when he came into the temple. And in Matthew's account, he focuses on these words. This is a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. What does he mean by that? It's worth considering that the house of prayer concept, I, I suppose I've already been kind of touching on in that we, we need to see this as a place of God's dwelling, a place where God and, and people can be together. That's really, really what a house of prayer is shorthand for. A house of prayer, we, we might wrongly conjure up images of something kind of ritualistic in itself, just, just something that's kind of, to be frank, dull and gray. When, when, when people in 21st century Brighton get, hear the phrase house of prayer, most of us wouldn't have our, our spines tingled. It was just not, it's not inspiring as a concept, but the concept when we understand it rightly should tingle our spines because it's, it's, it's simply saying a house where you get to be with God. The place where you get to be in the presence of your maker and you get to enjoy friendship you get to walk together you get to have what we had at the beginning what we had at the very first pages at the very early stages at our origins we were privileged with this staggering 
status of bearing his image and enjoying his fellowship. In the cool of the day, Adam walked in the garden. And, and the man and the woman together, with no shame, they weren't even clothed. They were, they were they, like little babies, you know, like babies aren't clothed, but they don't even notice. They're not even conscious of themselves. They're just, they're just happy in relationship with their parents. Well, in the same way, you could say, Adam and Eve, barely self-conscious, more conscious of this wonderful God they've been brought into relationship with and by. And yet this was savagely torn when, when the man and the woman rebelled, declared war, turned against God. And so this, this place of, of beautiful union, happy fellowship and joyful company together spoiled. And we were, we were pulled from it forever as a race, the whole of humanity. But God being kind and gracious reached out and found ways and pockets and moments, opportunities and places of fellowship. These holy places that God set up, altars, tabernacles and finally this temple of stone in Jerusalem. I will make my name dwell there. And, and it was famous. It was magnificent when it was dedicated in the days of Solomon. Fire came down and the priests were overwhelmed. They had to come outside. They couldn't even stand in there. They had to fall upon the ground. It was so overwhelming. It says, the majesty of God is in this place. We have the living God here. But it was, it was kind of difficult to host God, as you might imagine. <laughs> Being God, he's a, he's, he's a big guest to host, especially given our contamination our disease, our, our, our tendency to be inverted in upon ourselves, to take his best gifts and, and weaponize them, to, to use money and sex and power for our own selfish, arrogant ends, so that, so that our, our hearts lust after things that aren't God, that aren't godly, that aren't pure. So our relationship with him is, is difficult, it's very difficult. What's in our heart, the, the pornography, the, the greed, the, the, that, that jealousy and the, the bitterness and unforgiveness and these things that make it impossible for us to be friends with God. But he's, he's so yearning to find a way for us to be with him. And so he set up the temple with huge elaborate rituals because it's, got, it's a bit like when we had lockdown. And how can you be together with people when there's this horrible disease, this contamination that we could all catch, this killer disease that we're all terrified by? And so we sat behind screens and masks and stood three meters apart and couldn't touch and couldn't be at funerals, couldn't be at weddings. It was, it was so difficult. It was because of this, this danger, this threat. And this danger, this threat we talk of is far worse. And so the temple had to be a place of careful, careful, ritualistic uh, observance. Because this is not a small thing. He's holy. And he's God and he's mighty. How do we connect with him? And yet God is so earnest and sincere in his desire to create the opportunity in the space that he built this house. He had it built. And he made it their privilege. And Israel had this honor, this, this trembling wonder <laughs> this, that you should make us tremble, that we have the house of God amongst us. And yet, and yet, and yet, still, even still, within time, it's turned into a means of sort of nationalistic 
arrogance. This house of prayer has become, as Jesus says, a den of thieves. A den of thieves. What does he mean by that? Sometimes people say, well, it's because they were buying and selling stuff in the temple courtyard. He was cross because they were trading. That's not the point. There's, in itself, trading is not sinful. Right? If, if you run a shop, you know, you're okay. It's, that's, not, that's not the point in itself. Jesus isn't saying, how dare you buy and sell things? Now, in reality, the reason people bought and sold things is because they, they, they would travel to make a sacrifice at the temple. If you travel with your animal, it might pick up an injury on the way, and then you couldn't offer it because the sacrifice had to be perfect and pure. So they would buy and sell animals at the place, and they had to do trade to do that. That in itself wasn't necessarily wrong. When Jesus says you've turned it into a den of thieves, he's talking a little bit more profoundly. This is a generation by this time of, of people of Israel, the people of Judea and Galilee, uh, had a, div a highly developed sense of their nationhood, a highly developed sense of their importance and their, their entrenched holding out, their resentment against Rome against other powers and their desire to hold on to power, to hold on to strength and to honor and to, to assert themselves and to protect their identity nationally, culturally, socially. And I'm sure within that, each individual trying to hold on to their slice of the power, their position, their feathering their own nest. And the temple was a kind of emblem of their national, their, their national pride, their nation, their, their sense of significance and importance in the world. The, the, the temple had become that in a way that it became their kind of den, their, their hideout, their fortress, their refuge, their place of security. This is our den. This is, this is, this is the thing you can't touch. It's the temple. <laughs> you can't take this from us. This is the thing. And so much so that I suppose they, they built their security on the temple more than on the God who lived in the temple. The temple in itself became the thing rather than the living God who dwelt in the temple. And again, this pattern prevails in the Bible. It happens repeatedly. And it happens in our lives as well. The, the things that God gives us, the, the very things that God gives us become our, our kind of means of security over against the God who gave it to us. You can have your den, your, your place of protection, your fortress, that you're sure God would never touch this. God, God would never threaten this. I'm safe here. God would never come near me. You can hide from God in the things that God has given you, even in religion, even in church. Weirdly enough, one of the safest places to hide from God can be in church. You can hide from God in our religion. Thinking, well, God, I'm, I'm here, aren't I? I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm, I'm, I'm behaving. Or, or whatever it is. It could be various ways in which we try to imagine that we're somehow protected from God because, well, he wouldn't upset this thing in my life. He wouldn't turn that thing over in my life. This is, this is too important to him. The people of Israel did that in various ways in the past. They, they took the Ark of the Covenant into battle in 1 Samuel chapter 7. You might remember the story that they took this, this, this emblem of the presence of God, this golden box that God had set up as a place 
that they would place in the tabernacle, in the temple later. It was a glorious thing, but they used it as a kind of rabbit's foot. They kind of said, well, we'll take this into battle and God will give us victory. God will have to. God will have to give us victory because we're taking his ark. <laughs> we got him. We got him. We got God because he would never hurt us. He would never let, because we've got his ark. We've got him. It's kind of trying to hold God hostage or, or like a kidnapper trying to hold a hostage in front, you know, in movies where, where the, the bad guy does that. You know, he, he holds a gun to the hostage's head. Don't you can't touch me. And people do that in different ways. We, we can say, well, God, God, wouldn't let, God, wouldn't, God wouldn't pick my life apart. <laughs> no, God won't touch that part of my life. God would, God would never do that. God's nice. Until you find out that God is surprisingly willing. You, you'd be amazed how willing God is to touch the parts of your life that you think he would never touch. To question, to get to the root of things that you think, well, he, he, would, he, he wouldn't do that to me. He wouldn't let that happen to me. You need to understand God, God's desire is not for your things, for your religion, for your rituals. God's desire is for your heart. And to know and have your heart, for, for you to truly be trusting him, knowing him, loving him, it, it, it may mean that he'll touch parts of your life that you think, he wouldn't take that from me. And these people, they've, they've, allowed, this, this, they've allowed this sense of security into their lives. They think, well, we've got the, the house, we've got the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We, we can't be beaten, can we? Can we? We can't, no, we can't be. They were going to be. Jesus had said, not one stone will stand upon another in this temple. He said that. He talked about the temple being destroyed. He said, some of you will live to see this. Some of you in this lifetime, this will happen. He said, and sure enough, in AD 70, the Romans literally fulfilled his prophecy to get to the gold between the stones. They pulled each stone apart. Each stone came down, each stone. In, in a, the crushing of the Jewish revolt, it was, it was staggering. It was apocalyptic. It was the end of everything. For, that gen for generations of Jews who had this sense of national identity, the temple of the Lord, and except they, it was gone because they built their security. Foolishly, they thought they knew what they were doing, but they were building their house on sand. But it's God's house. Well, God, God, God's willing to say, you know what? I don't have to live there. If you don't know me, if you don't worship me truly, if you, if you treat me foolishly, if you despise my son, if you ignore my word, if you rebuke, if you send me, if you resist me, if in your heart you turn from me, if you love evil in your heart, if you won't allow me to touch your heart, if you prefer your lusts and your greeds and your jealousies, if you prefer your, your selfish ambitions and your pride, I don't have to live in that temple of yours. I don't have to. I won't. I'll let it fall. I'll let it fall because I will not be mocked. This is the God of the Bible. He won't be mocked. He'll, he'll allow all kinds of stuff to happen to us to, to help us to see straight, to take him seriously. Say, God, please help me. If, I, if I'm just not seeing, if I'm, 
if I'm just not seeing straight then Lord help soften my heart it's, it's my, my encouragement to you with all my heart today is to keep a soft heart towards God and not construct a false den of holding out against God a, a den of brigands a den of a den of 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 people with a false uh, construction of identity I, I i need to move on but i hope you understand the principal target of jesus action here he's making a point he's making a judgment point he's saying this house is coming down let me show you and he turns tables over and he says it's a den of thieves it's meant to be a house of prayer and he says, in a generation, this will come down. He's speaking that way prophetically through his acts, through his symbolic acts with his hands. He's speaking. But I, I love the way that we see. <laughs> There's so much to see. I, I haven't got time to, 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 to talk about so much about Jesus here. I, aren't you staggered by the fact that he, he's so lion and lamb? In this bit of the Bible, yeah, we, we, we celebrate a person who's described in this book as a, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the lion. That's the image that the Bible gives us, but it's not the only image. He is the lamb that was slain. In the same chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, he's described as both of those things in the same place. He is both at once. He's not just a lion. He is not just a lamb. He is a lamb who is a lion. He is a lion who is a lamb. There's a, a combination of beauties, virtues, excellences in Jesus that is like nothing else. We'll find nobody like him. Machiavelli said, if, if a leader wants to be loved and feared, <laughs> Well, some leaders might just manage to be both, but normally you have to choose between them. And if you're going to choose, choose to be feared. That was the advice of the political scientist Machiavelli. Choose to be feared more than loved. You're not really going to get to be both. Except Jesus somehow is both. Jesus is so fierce. We see a, 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 a sample of it here. We get a taste of his, his aggression, his passion, his zeal concern for the honor of his father and his willingness to, to to show it by force overturning temples sending people out it's aggressive it's frightening people would have been shocked and terrified that day as they will be one day the bible's very clear people will call on the rocks to fall upon them to hide them from his wrath there's a day coming when we will see Jesus as magnificent in all his honor and his glory. And we need to see this because we've rightly understood in recent years the, the importance of his gentleness. We've, some of us read a book that's gone around the, the churches and done us a lot of good, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. I do recommend it. We need to constantly meditate on his gentleness, on his his kindness his tenderness but not at the expense of his roar of his bite of his claws of his jealousy for his father's honor his pure holy jealousy 
his desire for the right things, for justice, for purity, for righteousness. And the, the assurance, the, the, the certainty, the inevitability of his coming reign, which he will see to. There'll be a day when he'll tear the sky open. There'll be a day when he'll finish everything. Say, so it's enough, enough to wickedness and sin. And we'll see the lion come through. But isn't it striking and wonderful that this same lion who comes into the temple with a, a steely look in his eye, with, with flames in his eye, this same Jesus is deeply attractive to the, the blind and the lame who <laughs> flock to him. They're drawn to him. They see him and they rejoice. The children, it says, who come saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Somebody who starts a protest in a public place. Somebody who starts a brawl. Somebody who gets angry at the man and, and speaks the truth to power with a megaphone on a soapbox or gets on television or starts a flame war online or starts a protest group or gets a website going. We might admire sometimes their sense of justice. We might find qualities in their, their strengths, their passion, their perseverance perhaps if they, if they keep shouldering that and keep it going for years and turn all the energy into actual results. We might respect those characteristics. But I wonder how many of them would have children and blind people and lame people running to them to receive, to enjoy, to celebrate, to, who would feel happy, comfortable, safe. This is an extraordinary person, Jesus. His passion, his zeal and his tenderness are totally united, bonded in this one man. And, and it, it means it means that dwelling with him, <laughs> which is what we are called to do, that was the whole point in the beginning, to dwell, to be in the presence of him, to share the garden with him. That's what the temple was meant to be. That's what he intended. Jesus is still building his temple. You might say, well, this, this was the end. He said, you said, finished. The temple's finished. He probably... This was the point, He's, didn't you say? And AD 70, you know, 35 or so years later, the thing was crushed and disintegrated. There's no temple. Oh, but there is. <laughs> Jesus himself dwelling amongst us is the temple. Jesus is building a temple of people who are joined to him. Jesus is a dwelling place himself. But who would want to dwell with him? Certainly not a, a bunch of brigands, not a den of robbers, thieves, not people who are boasting in their own security, people who are putting other things before him. You won't enjoy his presence much. You won't. It's hard to dwell with someone you're holding out against. You ever tried it? Ever tried living with someone who you're in profound competition with? Ever tried living with someone that you can't bear? Tried living with someone who you, you are utterly antagonistic to. You can't do that. And he's the Lord. He's the master. He's the king. <laughs> he's the living God. 
He's the son of David. He's the, the one about whom the children sing these songs. And Jesus said, it's out from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You've prepared praise. He's the one we should praise. He is the Lord, Emmanuel. Do you want to live in the same place as him? I tell you, you can't unless you come like a child. You can't. It won't work. You can't be around him. You know this, don't you? You can't really be around Jesus unless you're willing to be blind and lame or a child. Unless you come that way. Unless you admit your need. Unless you start there. Unless you let him deconstruct your pride, your selfish dreams, your, your personal choices, your personal trajectory. You, you're going to say, Jesus, I just come to you as an infant. I come to you singing to you. I come to you just to know you and to be around you and to worship you and to receive from you. I want you. I do. I want you. I put the other stuff behind me. I want you, Jesus. Have you got to that place yet? Are you getting to that place? You're coming back to that place frequently? You're living your life that way? That's, that's how to live, to, to be prepared to live childlike. I didn't say childish, I said childlike. I didn't say that you stay blind or you stay lame. Jesus heals, Jesus restores, Jesus creates strength in those who come to him. Jesus raises up the poor to become oaks of righteousness in his house. He's building a glorious house. He's building a beautiful church. He's building a community made up of messed up people, failures like you and me, people who can't do it in themselves. People who know that they haven't got what it takes, but they've come to the one who has, and they're finding him, restoring them, raising them up, creating new life and building them together into a temple, into a, a house, living stones, living stones, formed together perfectly by this wise master builder, Jesus. He's building his church. This church is a beautiful temple. It's a wonderful place of healing, forgiveness, festivities, feasting, joy, a house of prayer. This is what we want to build in, in cities like Brighton and Hove and Shoreham and, and beyond. We want, we want there to be a temple, a dwelling place for God. People come in and say, this isn't what I expected. <laughs> I thought I knew what religion would be like. I thought I knew what to expect. I just find he's here. <laughs> There's somebody here. I want him. And if that's what you want, then you've come to the right place. We want you to know him as well. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For this story, we thank you for your son. We pray, help us, like these blind, these lame, these children, to have our hearts wide open, to have a pure, a pure, soft-hearted devotion to you. And please, would you build your church in this city and beyond? In Jesus' name, amen.